Welcome to SBNM is Here, the State Bar of New Mexico's official podcast. In this series, we'll discuss topics such as professional development, tools of the legal trade, and mental and professional well-being. Connecting the legal community across New Mexico, SBNM is here. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to season three of SBNM is Here. This is Morgan Pettit, member services manager and podcast producer. Well, this is it. Welcome to the end of season three. It's been another successful season, and whether you are tuning in for the first time or you've listened throughout the past three years, I want to personally say thank you to you. As of this recording, we have released 37 episodes of SBNM is here, which is just, it blows my mind. Uh, SBNM is here has been streamed over 8,200 times as of this recording, not including this episode, uh, which includes listeners in 31 states and 10 different countries. Um, I'm just humbled and thank you tenfold. This podcast has been one of my favorite endeavors here at the State Bar, so I just want to give a big thank you to you again as a listener. A massive thank you to the State Bar leadership for allowing this podcast to have its opportunity, and a tenfold thank you to every single presenter who has given your time, your content, your expertise, um, and some of your wisdom through your episodes. With that, let's get to the good stuff. <laughs> Today's episode is co-sponsored by the Young Lawyers Division and adds another episode to their What I Wish I Knew library. Damon Hudson, the 2023 Wildy Chair, sits down and chats with Chief Justice Shannon Bacon. They reflect on her career and what she wishes she knew as a new slash young attorney, the importance of getting involved in the legal community, self-care, and even the Chief Justice's favorite soccer team. I could not think of a more fitting way to end this season. So with that, Damon and Chief Justice, take it away. Thank you, Morgan. I am very excited to introduce our esteemed guest for today's Young Lawyers Division podcast series, What I Wish I Knew. I'm here with Chief Justice Shannon Bacon. Justice Bacon was appointed to the New Mexico Supreme Court on January 25th, 2019, after being recommended by a nonpartisan Judicial Nomination Commission. She took the oath of office on February 4th, 2019. Before her appointment, Justice Bacon served as a district court judge on the second judicial district court and as the presiding civil judge. While serving on the district court, Justice Bacon presided over thousands of cases spanning complex civil litigation, class actions, adult guardianship and conservatorship cases, real estate and contract disputes, election issues, domestic and children's court issues, and appeals. Justice Bacon was also the Bernalillo County Water and Middle Rio Grande Conservancy District Judge. Prior to joining the New Mexico Supreme Court, Justice Bacon served on numerous commissions and committees. She served on the New Mexico Supreme Court Adult Guardianship and Conservatorship Steering Committee as the chair, the Access to Justice Commission, the Bernalillo County Pro Bono Committee as the co-chair, the Supreme Court Personnel Rules Committee as the chair, the Supreme Court Rules of Evidence Committee as the chair, and the District and Metropolitan Judges Association as the president. Justice Bacon has also served on nonprofit boards that address the needs of youth experiencing homelessness for more than a decade. Prior to taking the bench, Justice Bacon was a partner at Sutton Thayer Brown, P Sutton Thayer and Brown PA, and Eves Bardicke Bow Kirsten Larson PA, where her practice focused on complex litigation and appeals. She began her legal career as a law clerk for the Honorable A. Joseph Allred at the New Mexico Court of Appeals. Justice Bacon earned a bachelor's degree in history and her law degree at Creighton University. And upon completion of her education, Justice Baker returned to Albuquerque, New Mexico, where she was raised to begin her professional career. 
Um, for that introduction, not encompassing all the fantastic things that I know that she does. Thank you for being part of what I the what I wish I knew podcast while the podcast series. How are you doing today, Chief Justice Bacon? Good. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. And anything else you'd like me to add to your introduction? Hmm. I'm a. I try to be a really good Tia. Fantastic. Okay. Well, let's. I mean, we'll get into that a little bit. I assume later on, but just initially starting off at. Uh, I also went to law school, a different law school in Nebraska, but as um, you and I both, <laughs> you and I both uh, are native New Mexicans who for, I assume are very different reasons, went to law schools in Nebraska. Uh, and although I know we both have positive things to say about the University of New Mexico Law School, um, what first motivated you to attend law school at Creighton? So I had gone to undergrad at Creighton and had decided I'll see if I can get into a law school and applied in a variety of places and then ultimately decided just to stay put. Um, I was, it seemed an easier transition into the rigors of, of law school to stay in the same place and glad that I did it. And just correct me if I'm wrong, just speaking, but you were also a, an, an undergraduate, you were a soccer player at Creighton, is that right? Briefly, I was. I, I played and then decided I should probably go to class too. So I, I gave up my, my soccer career and decided to attend school. So after attending um, law school at Creighton, what motivated you to return to New Mexico? So when I was um, in law school, it was the summer after my, my first year, uh, my mother died. And I, you know, obviously came home and it was through that experience that I decided that being here um, with family and with the community that had helped my family so much during that really hard time was a really, uh, was the right thing for me to do. And I'm really glad I came home and I can't imagine living anywhere else. That, that must've been very challenging though. How did how did you navigate that decision of deciding where to practice, which is initially one of the bigger decisions that a, a new attorney will make, especially under all that stress of, of a loss? Yeah, so I mean, I, I think the first big thing was deciding to come home. And then I set my sights on clerking again, keeping my fingers crossed that somebody would, would take me. And I was really fortunate and had some choices in that regard. And so I took the clerkship with Judge Allerid in part because he was in Albuquerque. The Court of Appeals only had three judges in Albuquerque at the time. But because I hadn't gone to law school here, I wanted to put down my roots in Albuquerque and start my legal career there rather than Santa Fe. So being newer to the bar and at least not having the connections of, of the law degree in New Mexico, how did you really get yourself involved in kind of work to establish your network as a New Mexico attorney? So, you know, you meet a lot of people clerking. Um, so I had that group of folks and the judges that I worked for who were really terrific um, mentors to me as I was deciding kind of what I wanted to do next um, when I went out into practice. And so that was the kind of the beginning of it. I also was involved early on with the Women's Bar Association. And that was a way for me to get to know people who I wouldn't have met otherwise. And so I think that was the, the beginnings of that experience. 
and as, as that experience progressed, um, have you, have you learned new lessons that you want to impart onto to newer attorneys about kind of jumping themselves in coming from out of state? Yeah, I think it really is getting involved in either the bar community or the community at large so that you're meeting people that are outside of just who you work with, who most often are really lovely folks, but it can become a little insular. So I know that um, being involved in the Women's Bar Association was an important piece of that. Some of my colleagues talk about being getting involved with the state bar, inns of court, things like that as young lawyers as a way to get to know uh, people in the legal community and meet people that are outside of your practice area. Kind of finding that hook into New Mexico and catching mm -hmm. along. At, at the same point, those, those things were helpful. Are there, are there things you had wished you had known about? I mean, kind of networking, I know that that term is really broad, but are there, are there things you wish you'd known that you'd advise a, um, at, your, at the time yourself, a practicing attorney or a new attorney trying to create those connections? Hmm. That's a tough question. You know, I think I probably could have been broader in scope. I, I didn't really involve myself with the state bar itself. And as a, um, as a more senior person now, I see really the benefit of being involved in the state bar. I was not a YLD person, um, but now not just because you guys are asking me the questions. Um, I've seen it over the course of time, what that can do to, to help. Um, a new lawyer uh, get their footing is through YLD. And it, it definitely helps that the New Mexico bar community can be welcoming. I just, yeah. Well, in the, and in the same vein of, of kind of talking of coming from out of state, I think that your record really demonstrates a commitment to, to pro bono service. I serve on the access to justice commission with you. Um, but if you, I talked in the introduction about a number of different things you did before you really rose up and, and really show, have shown the commitment you have to pro bono service, how did you first kind of get involved in doing that kind of uh, pro bono service? So it was in fits and spurts when I was in private practice. Um, there were a few cases that I was involved in that were pro bono that were kind of on the key tam side of things. And they were really opportunities to work with my uncle who's a longtime lawyer. And so we would team up on some projects like that together. And it was really an excuse for us to, to do some things together, which was fun. Um, and it didn't become a really big feature of my world until I became a judge. And then you see the, the crushing need and how, just how many folks are forced to represent themselves. The kind of litigation practice I had, we didn't encounter self-represented litigants very often. You take the bench as a trial court judge and then suddenly you realize just how frequently that happens and how significant the need is. So, so in your private practice, more of, of kind of as things came in and kind of using your connections to, mm -hmm. to kind of as a, as a relational building and, and chance to hang out with somebody, but what, what were the first kind of things when you uh, joined the bench that you kind of jumped into and found, I mean, as much as it's, it's, it's a help, it's also an opportunity. There's some joy in being able to provide that assistance that an attorney or a judge can only provide. Absolutely. So I think a, a couple of things. First, I have a kind of a, in my background, I have kind of a grassroots part of me. Um, and that 
I exercised that as a lawyer um, through election work where I was coordinating election protection statewide and pulling people together and training them and getting the troops out into the field type of thing and just doing that on my own. Um, and so figuring out how that would translate to the bench, I had no idea how, if or how it would. And so it happens that I became a judge at the height of the recession and the foreclosure crisis. And so there was this instant opportunity to try and be creative and figure out ways to avoid um, folks losing their home if it could be saved or to give them some grace as they navigated the process. And so right out of the gate, there was this incredible need and a big void to fill. So I think that created opportunities right out of the gate that I would have never been able to predict. What, what were some of, those, some of those opportunities that you jumped at? So first um, we were having um, really gigantic legal fairs. Everyone knows the, the term Lollapaloozas in, in New Mexico in particular in Albuquerque and Judge Clay Campbell and Judge Nan Nash and Judge Alan Malott and I were the ones really working to put those together. And we were serving over a thousand people in a day. And they were massive events at the convention center and a huge focus of those were foreclosure cases. And so it was pairing people as quickly as we could, even though it was br brief advice in council of how to navigate those waters. Um, and then with time, it turned into the Second Judicial's forecl um, foreclosure settlement program, which based on the way foreclosure law is written, it gave the opportunity for the court to require um, at least a, a conversation about mediation before the case was put on the judge's docket. And so we, we in the second, they divert all foreclosure cases that are for owner-occupied homes into this program. And people can opt out if they're not interested in it, but most people stay in the program and you have housing counselors available, mediators available. And because of that, the number of cases that a judge actually has to resolve just plummeted. And people were either able to refinance, um, get cash for keys, meaning the bank would give people moving costs for them to leave the premises, everything that we could do to make it feel a little more graceful um, because losing your home's a really big deal. And that program still exists today, has grown by leaps and bounds, and we hope to take it statewide this year. And that's kind of giving people some of the means to help. Even if an attorney can help them, it's, it's to give them the tools to do as much as they can. Right. And so, so you talked about that kind of work. And then I assume that that kind of relates to some of the, the work that the courts had to do in with the COVID pandemic and, and really these two housing on, on either end of the spectrum. Is, is that an area that you see a lot of the big issues in that, that attorneys can help pro bono service? There are other areas that... Absolutely. Um, housing, um, housing is a fundamental right. And that right has been... Um, largely ignored and how to help people keep a roof over their head. 
So the foreclosure, the foreclosure settlement program is a significant piece of that. The other side with the pandemic was evictions. And, um, you know, when we started looking at the potential for thousands and thousands of people to lose their housing in the middle of a pandemic, worst thing that can happen is that all of those people are either unhoused or out looking for housing when you know, we're supposed to be staying at home and hopefully protecting our health, that there was a real need for the court to intervene um, in a way that a lot of other states did. We had to do it in a slightly different way because of the way our Landlord-Tenant Act is written. Um, but it, we put a moratorium on evictions for failure to pay. Certainly we didn't, weren't focusing on people who were violating different set of rules, um, you know, violent behavior in a house or destruction of property and the like. But if it was for failure to pay, we kept people in their homes and eventually were able to establish the eviction diversion program, um, which created a system for people to access the federal funding to pay for their rent. So in being able to access that money in a way that made, made it easier for folks, it made the landlords whole because they got paid for the missed rent and it kept people housed at the same time. And that's a, a program that is um, through a lot of collaboration between legal service providers, the um, bigger apartment owners, the apartment association, city of Albuquerque, and the Department of Finance Administration. And that partnership between and collaboration between all of those folks has really led to something pretty tremendous for the state of New Mexico, a more than $200 million in rent relief and utility relief has been dispersed by the department. And um, it also has, It has uh, kept over 45,000 families housed that otherwise would have gone unhoused. Which, which must feel like a pretty good thing to hear, at least doing pro bono service, right? Right, and, it's, and it has, you know, while we have lots of um, legal service provider lawyers, legal aid and the like, that program is really the key to its success is navigators that don't have to be lawyers that are helping people navigate the system to access the funding as opposed to um, legal help. But I will say that evictions in particular are some of the easier cases for lawyers to engage in pro bono. They're very finite in time. The facts are not particularly complicated. The law is not particularly complicated. The, the key for a lawyer in those cases is making sure that both parties' rights are acknowledged and seeing if resolution can be reached. And I think that's really important in the landlord-tenant world. And, and not to jump too far off of that, but in, in the sense of, like I said, it's again, there's there's some degree of, of your providing support, but you've done, spent a long time doing pro bono work. What's what's some of the, the best joy or tell me a little bit about some of like something that's been really exciting to you and at least being able to, to help and provide, um, not just necessarily related to housing, but pro bono service in some way, shape or form. I think it's, um, you know, when you're, you see the outcome, and I get to, you know, kind of observe this from a different perspective as a judge, um, but I would have folks that had come in front of me 
who clearly needed legal help, I would refer them to the volunteer attorney program. They would get paired with a lawyer and then they would be back in the front of me. And that litigant who was trying to represent themselves and was just terrified, just had this sense of relief wash over them because somebody with a law degree was standing up and advocating for them. Uh, so I think that seeing kind of that full circle is really rewarding. Um, some of the, the neater cases where you see kind of how tremendous that feeling is are in kinship guardianship cases where, you know, for whatever reason, the kids are needing to be parented by somebody other than their, um, their birth parents. And oftentimes it's grandparents stepping into that role and the joy that that brings the grandparents and the stability that it brings to the kids is palpable right out of the gate. Giving that kind of safety, housing, and or just personal life generally. Yeah. So you, you talked a lot about housing and definitely an important issue, mm -hmm. especially on the bench. I imagine there's some things you just can't do, right? There's not, you're not the attorney arguing to the court, you're, you're trying to create these, help change the systems, but you probably see need outside of housing. What, is, what are some of the bigger areas that that attorneys can provide pro bono, pro bono support in that either there's not enough available or mm -hmm. there's just always more need, which I imagine occurs a lot in the pro bono realm. Yeah, I mean, so in almost every facet, um, it doesn't matter if it's real estate, probate and the like, but the places that you see significant need where I think it's fairly easy for attorneys to plug in and provide that assistance. Like first one is kinship guardianship. I think there's a huge need right now because um, Pegasus for children, um, they do a lot of kinship guardianship work and their waiting list for kinship guardianship is, is off the charts now because so many kids lost their parents due to COVID. And so that's a very solid place for an attorney to say, I can, I can go in and help with that because it, again, it's this limited scope in terms of what the law is and what you're trying to accomplish. Um, the other place where it's pretty easy to step in and really help somebody is in domestic violence cases. So orders of protection um, are a, a very simple place for attorneys that you you know, again, a finite area of the law, really limited time scope because orders of protection happen very quickly. Um, that can, you can make a huge difference for somebody um, stepping into, into that world. So I think a lot of, and you talked about a little bit that you didn't, weren't able to do, you found more of the need when you got on the bench for what you could do pro bono. What, what kind of advice? I mean, I think there are definitely some fantastic areas you've mentioned on how attorneys can engage themselves. What advice would you give to younger attorneys? And I, I see younger in the sense that newer to the practice mm -hmm. to get involved with pro bono stuff. If they, they might have a, a larger corporate practice that doesn't involve some of these areas, how can they get themselves involved uh, in volunteering and doing the pro bono work? We've made it very easy. <laughs> um, so first things that everybody should know is that there is malpractice coverage for any pro, any pro bono case an attorney decides to take through the volunteer attorney program or the modest means program at the New Mexico State Bar. So that insurance is provided for you. So your 
primary malpractice insurance is not on the hook if you were to make a mistake. So that's the first obstacle is gone is the fear of malpractice. Um, second, through the volunteer attorney program and the pro bono um, committees around the state, in areas where there is tremendous need, like orders of protection or kinship guardianship and things like that, they provide free CLE to anybody who wants to take on a case like that. So they're going to give you the playbook and discuss with you and educate you how to do the case. And then in return, you take on the client. So you will never be um, cut out to see, so to speak, if you decide to take on a case. Um, lots of supports are built up around you to help you navigate those waters. So you don't have to be fearful that you're not an expert in family law or domestic violence or children's law and the like. The, these programs are designed to help you know exactly what you need to do to make it really easy for you to provide the services. And you talk about fears that definitely the malpractice one's an important one and you jumping into these things and they, they give you the tools are, are there any advice you give to an attorney I mean some of these areas are a lot more personal than like if you're dealing in a larger corporate practice can you just talk to advice maybe uh, a younger attorney you'd give in the sense of jumping into something very new that is is very important to some of these people's lives what, what kind of advice do you give to yourself doing that when you or what you wish you knew or a new New Mexico attorney I, I think it's that um, what's going on for that individual is the most important thing in their world. You know, it's their personal safety, it's the safety of their grandkids, what, whatever it is, it's really personal to them. Um, and just by the fact that you have a law degree, much less past the bar, just the fact that you have a law degree, you are a hundred miles ahead of them in navigating the court system. It is not foreign to you to talk to lawyers um, or frankly, to talk to, to judges. Even if you're in a non-litigation setting, you were trained for this role and you know how to read the law, you know how to read the rules, you know what a witness is, <laughs> all of those things. So you're, you're far, far advanced compared to where the client is. So any help you can provide them um, can be life-changing for them, but it, frankly, I think the real payoff is that it will be life-changing for you. You kind of have that fluency already to jump in and be able to assist them, even if it's a newer area of the law. Yep. Yeah. So in this, in the same sense, I imagine as much as part, my hope today is that this incur this podcast encourages some folks to, to just work on their, their, their 50 hours every year, but are there any major misconceptions about pro bono service that you've heard from attorneys or that that you maybe like to disabuse today i would love to do that so we have a really broadly written pro bono rule in the attorney code of, of ethics and i think it's unfortunate that it is crafted or drafted so broadly so it's people will tell me, oh, I've done my pro bono hours for the year because I serve on my child's PTO. Or I volunteer at my church, great thing to do. But the definition of pro bono is helping people who cannot otherwise afford legal services. And that's what I want lawyers to focus on is helping people who can't afford legal services. Um, I know that I had colleagues who said, well, my pro bono work is that I represent 
um, the Republican or the Democratic Party of the, of the state. And I do it for free. Well, that's great. Glad it, it's, I know it's super interesting, can be really engaging, but it's not an individual that can't afford legal services. It's an entity that likely could afford some legal services. So it's, it's not pro bono. So it's really focusing on people who are struggling to retain counsel because of the circumstances that they find themselves in. Um, most people in New Mexico cannot afford a lawyer, the vast majority. Most judges can't afford a lawyer. And uh, so if you try and think about just how many people are in need, I hope that you focus your energy and efforts from a pro bono perspective on those who are in need. Have a chance to have like a personal connection and thinking of it that way of, of helping a person. Right. So in the, in the same vein, what do, you, what do you wish you knew about pro bono service or what do you wish new attorneys knew about engagement in pro bono service early on and later on in their careers? I think I wish I had known um, how easy it is to, to do the work. I think we've worked really hard to make it even easier than it was when I was a new lawyer. There wasn't malpractice insurance when, when I started out as a lawyer, and that was always an obstacle working at a law firm. Um, but it's really easy to get matched up with somebody because there's no lack of need, no lack of cases. And we've built up all of these systems around it to really support you as the lawyer providing the services in a way that we don't with the run of the mill paying client, um, where you're going to get free CLE training, malpractice insurance, and frankly, lawyers who can assist you with anything that you find complicated in the case that you're taking on. So it's, it's set up in a way that there's really no excuse for not taking a case or more than, or cases as the case. <laughs> as, as definitely as encouraging, I, I would echo your sentiment on the volunteer attorney program through legal aid, they definitely make it easy, are also just very kind people to deal with. So I mean, yeah. I think for the, any of those things, it is made very easy in a lot of those realms. And then, then I mentioned it a little bit and I, I'd be remiss not to have you talk about it a little bit, but but do you mind telling, I, I know that there's some confusion at least sometimes, telling a little bit about what the Access to Justice Commission is. I know that there's some, uh, you use the term alphabet soup sometimes yeah. in the organizations, but um, if you wouldn't mind letting folks know about what, what that entity does. So the Access to Justice Commission is a commission of the New Mexico Supreme Court. It was established many years ago by Justice Petra Jimenez Maes and Judge Sarah Singleton. And there was a national movement to set up access to justice commissions in every state through their Supreme Courts. And it's really a policy making body and um, can also come up with programmatic type of things that need to happen. It's not the body that raises money and it is not a body that provides the legal services. It helps to bridge those two together. So the legal aids of the world and the um, equal access to justice part of the world, they're the fundraising piece of it. And then ATJ is the bridge between, and it really focuses on policy, what are best practices, what needs to be implemented in the courts and things like that. The pro bono committees in every district were born of an idea of the Access to Justice Commission. That's a really good example of the types of things that come out of the Access to Justice Commission. And, and I know you're, you're very involved in that group from being on it, but then you've also talked about your 
work early when you got on the bench and later on. And it sounds like a lot of this revolves around some level of communication and, and organization and being in a position you can put all these pieces together. What kind of skills that you've learned throughout not just your practice, but your life, do you help think, help prepare you to be in these positions where, I mean, these are important decisions, but what, what, what do you think is best made you able to adapt to the changing forces that you've mentioned just your time on the bench even? So the kind of the subject of the day in terms of what 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 the crisis is is always changing. We had foreclosure, real ID became a really significant access issue. Evictions are a very hot topic right now. So it's really seeing what's starting to circulate through the courts and paying attention to that on the civil side of the court system. And then really learning and growing into the idea that the, the magic power of a judge or a justice is to convene people. That's one of the, the most significant powers I think judges have is to pick up the phone or send out an email and say to 10 different people or 10 different groups, we need to get together and talk about this and figure out what can be done. And recognizing over the course of the time, like, oh, that's something that I can actually do. <laughs> and people seem to respond. <laughs> Generally, uh, I imagine. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I really do think of the kind of the magic power of a judge or a justice is the power to convene people, get disparate groups who are talking about the same thing in the same room or in the same virtual world to talk about it. I think that, that perspective definitely relates, relates on how I, you've just talked about how you've demonstrated those skills. And I, um, I think we could spend a lot of time on, on your pro bono service network. I do, I would be remiss if we didn't talk about some of the other, other ways that you've operated as, as a justice judge and an attorney, um, kind of first just talking just generally balance what, what approaches from, from practice to, to the bench have you taken um, in, in regards to managing your time to be more efficient and, and to complete tasks just generally? It's, it changes based on where I've been in, you know, kind of the course of my career. Um, for me now, delegation is really important. I can't do all of the things that I want to do myself. So knowing who you can lean on and delegate to and trust. So when, if I delegate something to um, two district court judges to figure out and, and pull people together and come up with a proposal, I really am delegating that to them and trusting that what's going to come back to me is going to be useful and then we can have a conversation about it. Um, as, a, as a new lawyer, you can't delegate to anybody. <laughs> um, it's, it's tough to do that. And so as a, as a, as a newer lawyer, a younger lawyer, um, it was being sure that um, support staff that I worked with, my paralegals, they were so important to everything I did and making sure they knew they were important to everything I did and that it was collaborative. Um, and frankly, you just, you know, you have to work pretty darn, darn hard as a, as a new lawyer. Um, but, you know, so you don't have that delegation ability, but it's, I think one thing that makes working hard um, bearable is liking what you're doing. And the more I liked what I was doing, the more willing I was to put in the, the long hours. So really starting to understand what it is that I wanted to, to spend my time on the clients that I enjoyed, 
um, and things like that were were helpful. Have have your work habits? I mean, I understand it's very different from practice to to being a justice. How have those habits on on, on managing your time, not just delegation, shifted throughout your practice? Well, first off, can I say, is it practice still when you're on the bench? Is it is it still called in practice? No, it is not. Okay, thank you. It, yeah, to. it is not. We, <laughs> we by definition cannot practice law. Fair enough. Um, it, it's a violation of the judicial code of conduct. To so from practice law. to the bench, then let me let me correct right. the question. Um, there, it's really different. So as a as a lawyer, you are subject in certain ways to the to the schedule of the judge if, if you're in litigation. Um, but I actually found it easier to take time off as a lawyer than I did as a judge. Because you had X number of cases, which would result in X number of hearings or trials and things like that. And it could get, you know, crazy busy, but you could also carve out space and say, hey, judge, I'm not available for this week or these two weeks. Um, and so that I, I found myself able to take more time off, not a lot, but more time off as a practitioner than I was as a trial court judge, because everybody wants a piece of you as a trial court judge. And so you have to plan way, way ahead and carve out like this week, don't schedule anything. Um, but the upside of a trial court judge is in terms of your courtroom time, the court staff, they're done at five. And so it's, it's rare, and I think it became more rare over time because of the pressures on court reporters to have late nights during a trial. So I, I had more time at home during that part of my life as a, as a trial court judge. So it was more, my schedule was more predictable, less predictable as a practitioner. You, in different ways. And then at the Supreme Court, all bets are off. <laughs> Fair enough. And so you yeah. talked about like vacation and that, that change. What, what are your priorities? What are things you try and prioritize in, in caring for yourself as outside of the legal realm um, mm -hmm. generally? Um, so I'm not great at that, what people call work-life balance, but I do put some effort into it. Uh, so I have, you know, I, I love my house. I love my spouse. I love my dogs. We have a six month old puppy who takes a lot of time right now. You're well slept right now then too. Exactly. <laughs> Only up a few times. Um, I, I love spending time with my nephews at the beginning. I said, I work hard to be a good Tia and the, my nephews, the bacon bits are really important to me. <laughs> And I have a really great core group of friends that are really supportive of everything I do. And we're all kind of in the, the, the soup together, all working really hard, trying to accomplish things. And we're all really supportive of each other. So having that tight knit group is really important. Um, and then I love to be outdoors. And so for me, the, the unplugged part of my life is to be up in the mountains hiking or snowshoeing um, or hot air ballooning with my family. And those are things that you tend to not focus on um, work the whole time you're doing them. A lot of things you mentioned too, you can't do in Omaha, Nebraska. No, no, it's <laughs> flat, not a lot of balloons. 
<laughs> you, you jumped up, like uh, some of my questions kind of is the same vein too. You, you talked about your support system. What, what are, I mean, where do you draw that support from your support system and how are you a supportive individual, right? Your, your friends, if they were to talk about you, you'd hope they'd say the same. How do you best provide support and, and how do you best receive support from, from your, your friends or your family like that? Yeah. So, I mean, first it, it starts with, with my wife who puts up with my, my crazy schedule because I travel an awful lot these days and I work an awful lot um, and takes care of, of lots of things in my life um, and is always um, a great listener and sounding board, but will also call me on it too and say, you're just being ridiculous. And that's equally important. <laughs> And then my, my core group of friends, um, you know, if you're having a rough time, a really bad day, they're the people that I can pick up the phone and call and just say, I'm just calling to, to gripe. And they do the same thing with me. I'm just having a rough day. I'm here to, to complain. Um, but we also make each other laugh and we force each other to do the things like go hiking and snowshoeing or go to the spa for a day um with some advanced planning and so they're they're good at pulling me out of that but i hopefully i'm part of the group that pulls them out of it too and then i also have fantastic colleagues i would be really remiss if you know we spend um, more time at work than we do at home and we all are really supportive of each other and the ideas that we have and what what change we want to see and it's a really collaborative court that is um, moving in the in the same direction. So it's good to to like the people you work with. Helps a heck of a lot. <laughs> and and two, it's like like you said, I, I was thinking the same thing. Yeah, having a significant other call you on your business is is mm -hmm. definitely helpful. Yeah, like um, you're just being ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> So, so not that those relationships are unimportant at all, but I imagine where you're at now, you've gotten, you've had mentors along the way and, and mentees have, what, what kind of support have you gotten from just from mentors as you've progressed uh, as an attorney and a judge of justice? I've, I've been really lucky. Um, I wouldn't be here without mentorship and people pushing me to think about it um think about what you know maybe this is something you should do okay uh and you know i was lucky that not not only did the judge i clerked for become a mentor but other judges at the court of appeals became mentors for me people that i could reach out to for advice on different things i was trying to figure out in my legal career and that is those same folks are still part of that world for me today. Um, my uncle, who I did some pro bono work with, is, is a significant one of those mentors for me um, as well. And everywhere you turn, there, there's somebody or a, a few people who serve in that role. The district court I had great colleagues who served in a mentorship role initially and then became great friends. And, you know, I think it's important for people to seek out mentorship because you have to foster, you have to foster that and figure out who you think um, can give you solid advice and guidance 
that you feel comfortable asking those what could be uncomfortable questions of. I really encourage lawyers to seek mentorship, not only with the people they work with, but importantly, people that they don't work with. So I definitely agree that seeking the mentorship, and I think that sometimes it's hard as a new attorney. Do you think that that always has to be a, hey, will you be my mentor relationship? Or, or how have you in, in, engaged in those? Or just even what's your general advice? I think it's sometimes hard to know. Sometimes we consider someone a mentor and they, may, uh, they might not consider themselves the same, or it's just that guidance. How, how do you obtain that? How did you obtain that mentor? For me, most of it was pretty natural. And I never really asked somebody to be my mentor, but I think you can seek formal mentorship as well, especially as a new lawyer and engaging in the mentorship program. I've, I've served in that role before. And even if that particular person doesn't end up being your long-term mentor, you might meet somebody along the way that is. And so I think it's being open to people and, and sharing of yourself in some way, because that's really what mentoring and mentorship are about, is you have to be able to willing, be willing to open yourself up in a certain way to, to share either what you're worried about or share about yourself in giving some kind of advice or guidance. Some vulnerability as they tell you how they walk. That's a great way to put it, some vulnerability. So in, in the same vein, having, I mean, I imagine that you're not afraid to pay that forward. How do you go about being a mentor to others now and, and as the chief justice and just outside of, of work even to, to help others progress? So I think all five justices view one of the primary roles of a, of a, of a Supreme Court justice. And I think the Court of Appeals judges view it this way too. I just haven't had a collective conversation with them. One of our important roles is, is mentoring. And the, the most obvious place that happens is with our law clerks because they're with us all day long and they're trying to figure out what do they wanna do next. And you spend time together and it, it's a very natural way of engaging in mentorship and not just our own chambers clerks. Um, I spend time talking to my other colleagues clerks and so do my, co and my colleagues do the same thing. So there's kind of a, a big mixing pot of mentorship going on for law clerks. I think the other way um, that I try and engage in mentorship is engagement at the law school. And I spend quite a bit of time, quite a bit of time for me, not for compared to professors or anything, but I spend time at the law school. I'm an adjunct professor for the evidence and trial practice program. I go and speak at the law school whenever asked. Um, we regularly go to the um, ethics class every spring and it's being available. And I think demonstrating to people in law school that we have these big titles, but we're really just people. And so it's, it's creating that access that is important. And so as an adjunct, I spend time talking to the students about, you know, what do they want to do? Do they want to clerk? You know, go consider watching a trial here, there, things like that. And so that's a form of mentorship, less formal. But that often turns into longer conversations 
with with people coming out of law school about what they want to do and see. It's not just talking about relevancy. Right. Um, do you have any advice uh, to attorneys on, on the, creating those mentorship relationships and how they can reach out to folks or even just how they can better guide? I mean, I don't think a mentor or the age is necessarily determinative of who can be the mentor or mentee, but any advice in that realm of how they can better support other new attorneys? So, I mean, the obvious place is outreach to YLD and then signing up to be a formal mentor for somebody that is new to practicing law in New Mexico. You'll be paired with somebody who, you know, you may not, you probably don't know at all. And um, engaging in that process and sitting down and spending time with the new lawyer and introducing them to people and the things that you do in your practice um, is a really easy way to get involved with mentorship. I appreciate the plug because I'll tell you, I definitely have met some fantastic soon-to-be attorneys through that program myself, people I would have never never met otherwise. Um, so, so shifting a little bit to, to focusing on a part of this podcast is, is looking at, at perspective. Um, what are what are ways that you think or you'd advise young attorneys to to use that perspective that they gain as they grow in practice to improve themselves? You're going to have to rephrase the question. <laughs> um, let me, so we're looking at your, I'm, I'm in my third year of practice, very different than my first year of practice. And I, I mean, as you progress, looking back on, on your time and, and this kind of asking yourself what I wish I knew, how, how can you take these reflections of your early time as an attorney to, to better yourself and then maybe, maybe on the bench someday um, for some of them, but. So, you know, I think I've spent quite a bit of time trying to think about what I wish I had knew, had known when I was a first year lawyer, second year lawyer, third year lawyer, is um, very little is at the end of the world. You're going to make mistakes. Mistakes are fixable. Own what you need to learn from it and move on and do that over and over and over again. And so I think we put a lot of pressure on ourselves as new lawyers to be perfect, but it's called the practice of law for a reason, because you're always learning something new and it's evolving and changing. So I think it's probably, I wish I had given myself a little more grace than I did. Um, I put myself under a tremendous amount of pressure to meet whatever standard I thought was in my head um, certainly, you know, there's the kind of written standards and you're going to build this much and, and things like that, but that wasn't really what was, was driving that, that pressure. For me, it was this, some definition of perfection that, that doesn't, that doesn't exist. So taking a deep breath, giving yourself some grace, knowing that you're going to make mistakes and you're going to recover and learn and move forward and it'll all be okay. That's some advice I could take myself once in a while, and I, that's definitely appreciated. Now, and on the same vein for newer attorneys, though, um, do you have any advice for um, interacting with members of the bench? Because I know that that is a change for, I mean, right, you, in law school, it's a professor, and then to, to deal with someone on the bench is, is especially in court, is, is a very different ballgame. 
it's one of the reasons I wish more people could clerk because it kind of takes the mystique away from somebody whose name is judge or justice. You realize they're really just people doing the best they can in that moment too. Um, and none of us are, are perfect and we all have bad days. And so just, I think, keeping in mind that as long as you are respectful and professional, it's all, you may, you're not gonna win everything, but it's, as long as you're reasonably respectful and professional, judges are gonna think you're, you're doing a good, a good job. And hopefully you think they're doing a good job too. FYI, judges worry about what lawyers think about them too. <laughs> Maybe not with the same ends, but to some degree we're all working together kind of. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it takes all pieces of that system to move a case forward and, and, and accomplish or achieve whatever the justice is that is supposed to result in that case. So in, in the same vein for folks listening, is there advice that you give to, to newer attorneys about who desire to be on the bench someday? So I one thing that I, I know that when I look at applications for judgeships through the judicial nominating question, commissions, the one shortcoming I see in applications, one of the questions is, you know, engagement in the community or community service, and it often says none. Being a judge is nothing but service. You're not here to get rich. Um, you're not here to get famous. You're going to get yelled at and criticized an awful lot. So it's all about service and it's serving the community that we live in. And so being engaged in community in some way is really important. You want to be a good lawyer, good reputation, not a jerk, not untrustworthy. Those are kind of basic tenets if you want to be a, a judge. But you also need to have engaged in your community some way. And there's a million different ways you can do it. Um, some people will focus on kind of bar related things. Um, and that that's great. Um, being involved in the community, though, is is really important. And those are the people who ultimately are going to support you seeking a judgeship because they know that you know something about um, the challenges that they face. So that's part of that balance between practicing law and being counselor engaged in the community um, balance that I think is really important if you um, are interested in the judiciary. Kind of relates back to some of the pro bono stuff we were talking about earlier. Yeah. yeah. So did you, I mean, it's kind of important to ask you where you're sitting now. Did, are you in a role now that you envisioned yourself in when you got into practice? Oh, God, no. <laughs> What, what did you imagine you'd be doing long-term when you first got into the practice of law? Probably still practicing law, partner in a law firm, trying cases. Um, that's, that's really the path that I, I thought I would be on. It wasn't until later that I thought about public service and then I had to figure out what kind of public service. Was it gonna be on the executive side, legislative side or judiciary? And the judiciary felt like the right fit for me and so I was really lucky and became a district court judge, which I loved that job and never thought, oh, Supreme Court or the Court of Appeals. I thought, I'm going to be a, a trial court judge. And then, you know, time passes and people um, start saying, hey, you might want to think about this. 
is there, or when did you finally decide, or when did you decide to become, to join the bench? What well, was there any undertaking that, that made that come up? Was there anything that made you? Anything yeah, there was a, a vacancy on the um, Bernalillo County Commission. And I, lots of people were pushing me to put in for that vacancy and become a county commissioner as a path towards, you know, other things. Um, and at that moment, I had to really think, is that the path I want to go down or is it something else? And so it forced me to, to figure that out. And then you just cross your fingers and hope that you've made the right decision. Taking opportunity when it's available or deciding not to to some degree. Right. Um, in your position as chief justice, compared to as an attorney, what do you miss most or least about practicing law compared to now? Uh, let's see, I don't have billable hours. <laughs> so at least I don't have to write it all down. <laughs> the hours are there, but I don't have to write it all down. Um, I will be honest, I don't miss discovery disputes as a lawyer or as a trial court judge. <laughs> Okay, that's good advice too, right? Yeah, those, those are, you know, I don't think lawyers particularly enjoy it and the judges don't enjoy it either. Um, we get it's necessary and it's important. It's important to your case. It's necessary for the judges to navigate it. Um, those are probably the two things that come to mind. Okay. The easiest. And in, in the same vein, talking like back perspective a little bit, but moving forward, how do you, in your current role, stay stay motivated? Given, I mean, you mentioned a list of a lot of things that are, that are challenges in the world that we have to confront. What what do you kind of look to 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 stay motivated and move forward? There's always something new that that needs to be tackled. Whether it's the case that I'm, you know, was reading this morning, preparing for oral argument, um, that needs my attention, or it's um, engaging with the bar on a myriad of issues. There's always something interesting and important to work on. And if you can focus on what the outcome of that will be, whether it's that I feel very prepared for oral argument to make a decision, or the outcome being true equity and justice in the judicial system, it's, it's focusing on that that keeps you moving even when you're, when you're tired. So, so to kind of ask the, the broad question that the podcast asks, I have a couple other questions for you after this, but is there anything else given you talk about how you stay motivated? We've talked about your pro bono service. Is there any, anything else you'd like to impart? Is there anything else you wish you knew when you got into practice a lot that you'd like to impart on, on new attorneys or, or long-term practicing attorneys today? Um, I think we, we talked about giving yourself some grace as a, as a new attorney. Um, I think also knowing that you know you can change course and it will be okay and it might actually be a good thing for the, for the change. <laughs> and I think a lot of you know kind of the the traditional model of a lawyer is you go to a law firm, you become a partner, you stay there, you retire. And it's very linear in that respect. And there's so many different things that you can do with a law degree. And if where you're working isn't the right fit, don't be afraid to jump and go somewhere else. Because the, the more you like what you're doing, the easier it is to do it. Fantastic. Yes, that's, that's a very good point. And even maybe to jump into some pro bono service. Exactly. So is there any, uh, is there any 
book you're reading now or any book that you'd advise new attorneys to read or just something you enjoyed that you'd want to recommend? So I spend a lot of time on Audible these days because um, I'm in the car a lot <laughs> because of my commute. Um, so right now my book club is reading banned books. Okay. And we decided to, to do that um, because banned books are a, a growing thing again. Um, it kind of had quieted down 20 years ago, but now we're kind of back in the, in the middle of it. And so we read, a, um, we read Mouse first, which is a graphic novel. I can say graphic novels are not my jam, but I get it. <laughs> I also have no idea why it's a banned book. It's about the Holocaust. I don't think that should be a verboten subject. Um, and now I'm in the middle of listening to All Boys Aren't Blue, okay. uh, which is a biography written by an African-American queer man. Okay. And it's, it's really well done, engaging, thought-provoking. Um, I'm really enjoying it. Fantastic. And then are you enjoy what are you enjoying on Netflix or any other streaming service now? I'm watching Annika. Okay. It's a, it's a masterpiece theater show. Fantastic. Um, I love masterpiece theater because I'm nerdy <laughs> that way. And it's a, she's a detective and it's, and it's really good. Okay. And then given, given your background a little bit, um, the World Cup coming up, who's your favorite soccer team that you support now? Well, okay, there's who I support and who I think I'm going to be able to support long run. Okay. Um, so of course I support the United States. Of course. Um, I will I will cheer heartily for um, our for our nation's team, um, but I fear that is a team built on one person. <laughs> so until they get knocked out, that's who I will be cheering for. Okay. Um, I think it would be appropriate. I'm not sure nice, but appropriate if Messi could win a World Cup before he hangs up his boots. Okay. Yeah, not, nice and appropriate are very different there, but yes. yeah. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> um, I tend to cheer for England and Spain for whatever reason. And my, uh, my underdog team is not in the World Cup this year, which is Iceland. Okay. And then who, do you have any prediction for how far the U.S. will go this year in the World Cup? I think they'll get out of round robin. Okay, let's hope. <laughs> well, Chief Justice Bacon, I really wanted to thank you for all your time today and, and the, the lessons you passed on. I appreciate it. And uh, thank you very much. Thank you. You made me think about all kinds of things I don't think of very often. And you're really, you're a great interviewer too. Well, well, thank you very much. Thank you for listening. This episode was produced by the State Bar of New Mexico's Member Services Department and the Young Lawyers Division. All editing and sound mixing was done by Blue Sky Elearn. Intro music is by Kevin McLeod at IncomTech. The views of the presenters are that of their own and are not endorsed by the State Bar of New Mexico. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you.